don't think it's any surprise that I'll draw your attention back to Ephesians 5 this morning. We'll begin reading in verse 25. We're going to deal with verses 25 through 33 today as a kind of as a whole. So let's uh, go to God's word and read from it here this morning in Ephesians 5, 25 through 33. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that we might meet together as the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. We might have that which he would have us to hear through his word. Lord, we ask that the Holy Spirit would rise up within each heart and hold us fast to the Word this morning, Lord. That is what we long to hear. We long to hear from You, to be fed from Your Word. Lord, as we look at these things, let us see that they are a picture of Christ in the church. What great love Christ had for His people. The people given to Him by the Father. Lord, the, the work of Christ in redeeming this people, purchasing these people, reconciling them to the Father. What love it is that's on display in our Savior. Lord, we thank you for this time that we can come together and worship you. We thank you for it. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, we find ourselves this morning in what I would consider to be one of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture as it relates to the application of biblical truth to the family, and in particular, the husband who is the head of the family. It's not so much difficult to understand, it's difficult because it's convicting. It's difficult to be told to love your wife as Christ loved the church. How does one do that? Now, but it's something that lays before us. 
this morning in our text, all that a husband is to be to his wife, summarized as love. As a result of what has been done, even before creation, for the people of God, now we're to apply that to our lives. That's what Paul is dealing with here this morning. Apply that to marriage. Apply that to the love that the husband is to have for the wife in this God-ordained union between man and woman. We said last week that it pictures something more than just the union between husband and wife, between two believers in marriage for, what, 50 to 70 years? And if the Lord is pleased, maybe a little longer. It's about the average probably for, for marriage, somewhere between 50 and 70 years if they live to be the age that is, is normal. We're not guaranteed that length of time, but if God is pleased in His grace and mercy to allow it, we will experience this picture in our lives for 50 to 70 years. But as we looked at last week, this points to, it pictures, or it is a type of something that has existed in the mind of the triune God from before foundation. It points us to the union, the holy union of the church to its Savior. Christ is called the husband of the church or the bridegroom of the church. And he has entered into this union with his people, the church, or as sometimes Paul refers to it here in Ephesians as the body of Christ. But before we go fully into this passage uh, this morning and to the practical application to husbands, I want to, to kind of start at the end of this passage. In verse 32, we read that this mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So if this is the case, that this union between a man and a woman refers to or points, symbolizes, typifies for us Christ and the church, I think it would be beneficial for us to understand in the culture when this was written, what marriage was like. And I had never done this before. And as I was thinking about this through this week, I just got to thinking, well, how is marriage today different than it was back then? There are a lot of points at which it's the same. But with just as many points as there are to compare it, there's also points that we can contrast what marriage was like then versus what it is like now. Today, a couple's engaged with a view to be husband and wife. They're not considered married. They're not considered husband and wife until the day of the wedding and the vows are given, the ceremony takes place, and the legal document is signed. So the end result of the marriage today is what it was when this was written in the time and the context that Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians. And sometimes I think it's a shame that we don't understand more about the context in which these epistles were written and the word was written throughout all these, these hundreds of years that it was written. Uh, and, we, and it's a shame in particular that we don't understand this because the language of the Bible is full of the language of marriage. It, it's, it's full of it. Everywhere you turn, 
were reading about things in terms of marriage language. The customs of marriages, the process of marriages. And we speak of this in this mystery that Paul refers to in terms of Christ and the church. So I want to take the time to look at these things because I I believe it further shows us the way that marriage typifies Christ and his union with the church. In ancient times, in in the times that, that this epistle was written, and going back before that, the father of the groom, the father of the groom would select a bride for his son. Does that not sound like things that we hear in Scripture? And this is, this is shown, probably one of the earliest instances of this where it's really detailed out is in Genesis 24, verses 1 through 4, where we read, Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. Abraham in his old old years, well advanced in years, was seeing to it that he chose for Isaac who would be his bride? Well, in Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, if you turn back a few pages, Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will God the father chose the bride for God the son how was it how is it that we're adopted as children because we have entered in as God's people to a union with Christ. What is Christ's become ours? His father becomes our father. My wife is now the daughter of my dad because we are now one. God the Father chose for God the Son a people that he would enter into union with. Well, and after the the father would choose the son's wife, they would enter into a betrothal. We use that term loosely today to to mean engaged, to be married. But it was something much more back in the day that this was written. They took part in a formal ceremony, a betrothal ceremony. They would offer into, enter into a, they would set up a, a structure called a, a, can, a marriage canopy. And they would go into this and they would, they would form a, a, a formal binding contract between the man and the woman that were to be betrothed. And at that point, they were viewed as husband and wife. 
Although the marriage had not been consummated, they did not live together in the same household. They were viewed as husband and wife. At this point, they entered into the betrothal period, which typically lasted about a year. And a divorce was the only option for getting out of this with just cause. If you remember back, remember in Matthew, we see this in the case of Mary and Joseph. Think about this. In Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit and her husband. They have not gone through the wedding ceremony. They are betrothed. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from, his, from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. This was during that betrothal period. The other thing that is interesting regarding this period of, of marriage, this betrothal period, was the exact date and time of the wedding ceremony was often unknown to the bride. During this time, the groom would be preparing a place. Think about that. The groom was preparing a place for the husband and wife to live making all those arrangements, and the wife would be preparing for the wedding ceremony, expectant for the day, making ready the garment, and trimming the lamps. It is this interesting to note that the father of the bridegroom who would give the approval for the bride, who would choose the bride, would be the one to decide the day and the hour when the groom would come for his bride. Does this sound familiar? What we learn from the New Testament regarding Christ and the church? Mark 13, 32 through 37 says, But concerning the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. 
Matthew 24, 44. Therefore you must, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The groom is coming for his bride at an hour you do not expect. We read earlier from Matthew 25, 1 through 6. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise, for when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul writes to the church there at Thessalonica in verse 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. With the voice of an archangel and with the sound of a trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always then be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So, it is said that during this time, when that time would come, that the father would say, father of the groom would say, it's time to go. It's time to go get your bride. That there would be a loud announcement and the blowing of a ram's horn. You see this marriage language all through Scripture. It's at this time that the groom would go and the bride is to be carried to the marriage home with much, much merriment and celebration when the marriage then is finally and completely realized. The bridegroom has returned to bring his bride to where he is so that the bride may be also. John 14, 3, Jesus said, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Revelation 19, 6-9, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God... The Almighty reigns, let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. We also see a picture of this later on in Revelation. 
Revelation 21, 1 through 2, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Do you see what it is that this marriage itself pictures for us and and why the Holy Spirit caused the apostle to write these exhortations and these applications for us? And for us to realize that marriage and our relationship within that God-ordained union between a man and a woman reflect and shine out to the world the relationship of Christ to the church. As hard as it was to deal with last week that wives are to submit to their husbands as the body is to submit to the head, Christ Jesus, this we are dealing with today is an absolute impossibility if it's done in the flesh. It's impossible for us to live up to this, to love our wives, to nourish and cherish our our wives as Christ Does the church? This must be done in the Spirit. Is it any wonder that we're told in verse 18, leading up to this, do not be drunk with wine, which is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit? Any wonder that this was preceding this exhortation from Paul? Man, we cannot... Do this unless it's done in the Spirit of God. You cannot and you will not be able to love your wife as Christ loved the church if you are not filled with the Holy Spirit. What else is the Holy Spirit often called? The Spirit of Christ. We must have the same love in the Spirit for our wives as Christ did For the church. Impossible according to the flesh. Nevertheless, here it is. The call for husbands, here in verse 25, to apply all that we have learned, all that we have seen throughout this letter to the Ephesians about what Christ has done for His people, His church, His body, His bride. We are to love our wives. It's very interesting to me. When he speaks to the wives, he says, wives, submit to your husband, that they're the head. But he doesn't tell the husbands here, rule over your wives. Don't be tyrannical with your wife. He says to love your wife. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. This is no ordinary love. This is not some sort of attraction. This is not a warm, fuzzy feeling I get when I'm near my wife. It's not about me or what I get out of this love. This is about giving. If we want to look at how Christ loved the church, He gave Himself up for her. We touched on this briefly last week. In the past as well, that this is this is this love is is sacrificial. It's not just enjoyment experienced experienced in spending time with the object of our affection. That's not what this love is about. 
This is the love, a, a love that leads to action. This love always leads to action, this type of love that Christ has. A love that is perfectly exhibited for us, and I wish we had time this morning. I would urge you to go home tonight and read John 17. If you want to know what the love of Christ was all about, look at his high priestly prayer in John 17. Notice here in, when you read that what this love looks like. It is sacrificial. Everything about it is sacrificial. When he pours out his heart to the Father, it was for the people of God that he prayed, for his bride, for the church. It wasn't prayer for him. It was prayers for his body. He was interceding on behalf of them in the very moments prior to him being betrayed and arrested and sent to the cross. He was praying for them. He prayed that they may be one, as he and the Father are one. Prayed to give them all the things that are his by right of who he is. Keeping them, guarding them, giving them his joy, his word, protecting him, protecting them from the power of the evil one, setting them apart or sanctifying them, consecrating them as he consecrated himself. Prayed that they would be given his glory, making available to them who were, we read and we dealt with earlier in Ephesians, that they were on the outside, that dividing wall of hostility. They could not come near to God the Father and experience His love. Well, Christ is praying that that love would be given to them that is shared between the Father and the Son. They're being united to Him. They become the adopted children of God, loved by God the Father. How is it that he did this for them? He gave himself up for them. Philippians 2, 6 through 8, we read about Christ who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, what does that mean? That means that he didn't have to try and, and, and earn the right to be equal with God. He didn't have to measure up. He was equal with God. He was God, John says. This, this equality with God was not a thing to be grasped. He already was equal with God. But he emptied himself. Taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The Lord of glory, creator of all things, the word that spoke the whole world into existence, humbled himself and took on the form of sinful man. He became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich. He gave himself up 
for us. The one to whom all obedience and glory is rightly to be given. The one to whom all obedience and glory is rightly to be given is said of in Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. This is the Lord of glory who humbled himself emptied himself to become as one despised and rejected of men for us. We talked about in Ephesians 5 when we were looking at verse 2 and walk in love. How are we to love our wives as Christ loved the church? And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Matthew 20, verse 25 through 28 says, But Jesus called to them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be the first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The one who by all rights we should serve to our very last breath became a servant for us that he might go to the cross, die and redeem us, purchase us that we might be his people. What is this giving himself up? It's a perfect and complete sacrifice to redeem his people, to rescue them, to purchase his bride who was bound in slavery to sin and giving his life so that we who were dead might live. What do we read earlier in Ephesians? And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. And how did He, re- how did, how did he do that? He redeemed us. He purchased us with His blood on the cross. Well, husbands, you love your wife this much? You will love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Your love is to picture that. That's what Paul is telling us here. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Do you pray for your wife as Christ prayed for his bride in John 17? You interceding for her in prayer to the Father for her spiritual life? for her well-being, for her protection against our enemy? Do you pray that you and your wife might have the relationship that you are truly one? That's what Christ prayed for for the church. 
that they would be one as we are one. Do you do everything in your power to meet the needs of your wife? Christ did this. He loved the church. He did everything that was necessary to provide for the church. Every single thing that was lacking, which was everything, he provided. Great cost to himself. Salvation is free. We will sing that from the mountaintops, but salvation is free to us. It cost Christ dearly. It cost him his life. But he was willing to do it. He gave himself up for his church. Verse 26 and 27 of our text in Ephesians 5 tells us Christ's purpose in loving the church and giving himself up for her. That he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Well, Christ has set his people apart from the world. He sanctified the church. And he did this once for all on one hand. In Titus 2.14 we read, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He has set his church, his bride, his people, his body apart from the world. They are his and they're his alone. Do you remember the prophet Hosea? Do you remember him? And the book and the Bible that we have, Hosea? Hosea was told by God to marry a woman of harlotry, take a wife of harlotry. She was an unfaithful wife. Well, this too, what we read of Hosea is a picture of marriage. Picture of Christ and His church. In the third chapter, Hosea is told to go and love this unfaithful woman. And he goes and he sets her apart. He tells her, you must dwell as mine. You will no longer be a wife of harlotry. You will no longer, the scriptural reference for it is play the whore. Or belong to another man. He is setting her apart from that which she was taking her out of her unfaithfulness and bringing her to faithfulness. And he says, I'll be that same thing to you. There is this ongoing process of this sanctifying, this purifying, this washing with, the wa- with water 
by the word that takes place. Martin Lloyd-Jones talked about this. He says, yes, uh, God has, has, uh, has provided us freedom from the power of sin, enslavement to sin. And that's a once for all thing. But Martin Lloyd-Jones talked about it, that there is also this need for cleansing from the pollution of sin. And what he meant by this is we have a sin nature. We, we have this, this, the Puritans refer to this, this as the remainders of indwelling sin. We still, although redeemed of the Lord, freed from the power of sin, have to contend with these remainders of our fleshly nature, these remainders of indwelling sin. We must be continually cleansed from this and washed by the word of God. David tells us in Psalm 119 verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Well, what is it that cleanses us? It's Christ who has given to us his word that he continually pours his word into his church, into his bride, into his people, into his body, cleansing them. And the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, has been giving to, given to us that the word may be applied to this pollution of sin, this remainders of indwelling sin, like a salve or a, a medical remedy applied against this polluted stream of this old nature until the point, and this will be an ongoing process until the point when Christ Jesus returns for his bride and his bride is glorified. No more sin. We read about this time in Revelation 21, 3 through 4. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. There's going to be no more occasion for sin. No more sin nature. No more indwelling these remainders of indwelling sin, none of that, that cause all these things that we read about there, the pain, the mourning, the crying. It is here that the bride is presented by Christ to Christ. What does our text say in Ephesians 5.27? It says, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is what Christ has done for His church, is doing for His church, and will do for His church, for His bride. Now, for us as men, husbands, love your your wife as Christ loved the church. His body. 
There's going to be many times in our marriages because we both deal with the uh, remainders of indwelling sin. Many times that this pollution of sin will rear its ugly head in our marriages. That this sin nature, this this struggling and contending with flesh, we read I think last week or maybe the week before where Paul was talking about his who will deliver me from this body of sin, this struggle that was even within the Apostle Paul, that that which he would do, he does not do, and that which he wills not to do, that that's what he does. This is what we're talking about here. This struggle with, with these, this contention with, with sin. Well, what's the husband to do? Well, he's, apply, he's to apply the word. It's the same remedy that Christ has for his body, for his church, for his brides, to apply the word into every situation with love like Christ loves his own bride. And to cleanse that union even from the pollution of sin by applying the word of God. Love her as Christ loves the body. Love her as you do your own body, we read in verse 28. Love your wife as your own body. Remember that this institution of marriage, this God-given institution, this, this thing that God has given us to picture His relationship between Himself and His church, the two become one. Do you see what Paul's getting in here in, in verse 28? In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Do you see... Here in verse 31. Well, let's back up. Let's read 29 through 31. For, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. When you read that, you should see some quotation marks there. In verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a direct quotation from Genesis. And if we turn back, I think we read this last week, but I think it's worth worth reading it again. If you turn all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, and I believe it's verse 18. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. It's where we get this quotation that Paul is using. And I want to read this to you. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a, uh, found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man." 
Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. This marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. The man and the woman have become one flesh. Paul says in, in our text in verse 32 that this, is, this mystery is profound. He says this mystery is, is profound. But this is the case because it typifies something greater given to us so that we might more fully grasp what Christ is to the church and what the church is to Christ. So back in verse 28 and 29 of our passage in Ephesians, Paul, by inspiration of the Spirit of God, says that we husbands are to love our wives as our own bodies. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. So what do we see in this for us as husbands? Well, if we love our, our, our wife as Christ loved the church, his body, we love our wives as we love our own bodies. We would never malnourish or mistreat our own bodies. I don't know about you, but I eat three meals a day. I don't go hungry. I don't starve my own body. I don't mistreat my flesh. And I can't believe that we even have to say this, in, but in today's time we do, that nobody in their right mind would cut off a part of their body without some cause some disease that is occurring that requires something to be cut off. We don't mistreat our own bodies. We don't malnourish our own bodies. And what Paul is telling us as husbands here is that our wives are joined to us. We are one flesh. One body, as much as two people can be one body. So we love our wife because she is our own body. As Christ loved the church as the head of the church, the church is his body. He loves his body. We are to exemplify that, to typify that, to bear that out in our own union, our own relationship with our wife, that is to mimic the relationship of Christ to the church. What do we see Christ doing for the church in this regard to nourish her, to cherish her as His own body? Well, Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He, that's Christ, always lives to make intercession for them. We often think, and I, I really think that this is a, a shame that we do, but we kind of think about the work of Christ as if, as if it's a work that has been done. 
And that's part of it, but that's not the whole of it. We look at it it's like it's all past tense. Well, he came to save us. He died on the cross. He rose for our justification. He ascended into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of, of God the Father. That's not it. He's not done working. He ever lives to make intercession for us, Hebrews tells us. And if we look back at the last, uh, excuse me, the first three chapters of Revelation, I want you to see a couple things here. In Revelation chapter 1, where John has this vision, in verse 13, well, verse 12, we see Christ here in the center of the seven churches that represent the fullness of Christ's body. Seven represents that number of fullness, completeness. These seven churches are representative of the churches throughout time. The the church, the church of, of Christ. Then I turned, John said in verse 12, to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. These, well, then down in verse 20, excuse me, uh, verse 16. In his right hand he held seven stars. This is what John is seeing of Christ. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Well, what is these what are these seven lampstands and what are the seven stars? Well, Christ tells John. Verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels or the pastors, the, the, the messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So here we have Christ holding up those who would minister to his body. And he's walking in the midst of these seven lampstands which represent the completeness, the fullness of His church throughout all history, throughout all times, everywhere. He is intimately involved with His body. And later in Revelation, there in the, each of the letters... He he, he writes a letter to each of these seven churches and he says, I know. I know. Well, what does he know? I know your works. I know your suffering. I know your poverty. I know where you dwell. He is intimately aware and knows the needs, the trials, the difficulties, and he pours into his church that which they need. He nourishes them according to their needs. He cherishes them. He points them to the day when He will come and bring them to Himself and lays before them in these seven letters the promises of what is to come. He is continually pouring out His Spirit upon His body. And He gives them His Word. 
Let me just ask us as husbands, do we know what our wife is going through? Do we seek to supply that which our wife needs? Are we nourishing our wife as part of our own body? This is to be a constant picture for us, to re- as a reminder for us of what Christ does for the church. How He loves His church and provides for it. And through His Word points to all the promises of God because He loves her and He cares for her. Well, time is getting away from us. There's a lot more that we, we could spend weeks upon weeks looking at the picture of marriage and what it represents about Christ and His people. Just this week I was listening to a message while I was out walking and the concept of a new name was brought up. This is a concept that runs throughout the Bible. Isaiah talks about this. Revelation talks about this. But in Revelation, Christ promises to them that overcomes in one of His letters to the seven churches that He will give them a new name. He will write on them the name of God, the name of this this new name. Write on them the, the name of God, the name of the city of God, and His own new name. Even this is pictured in marriage where a wife takes on the name of her husband. There is so much about marriage. The the God-ordained marriage that we find in the Bible that pictures for us Christ and His church. Well, as we close, husbands, we need to look to Christ if we would know how to love our wife and do it according to the way that God would have us to do We would look to Him to know how He nourishes His wife, how He cherishes His wife, the bride, the church, that we might know how to love and cherish and nourish our wife. And we should beg His forgiveness for not living up to that, not being what we are called to be. And wives, at least I would know that I would ask my wife to pray for me to be a husband that I should be to her. May God grant that our marriages would be lived as a picture of Christ and His love and union to the church. Marriage should consist of two believers filled with the Holy Spirit, not according to the flesh, but in the Spirit, in the principle laid out in Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, That should be what typifies the Christian marriage. Wives submitting to your husband as to the Lord. Husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for it. We cannot do this without being filled with the Holy Spirit. Without belonging to Christ. Do you see why I say that marriage is for Christians? Does this explain why I said what I said last week? That I don't believe that marriage is for any but Christians. It must be a man born again of the Spirit of God united to a woman born again of the Spirit of God. Because if you're not full of the Spirit, what God tells us through the Apostle Paul about marriage can never be. Can never be. 
our Bible basically ends or begins and ends with a marriage. We see what is typified in the marriage of Adam and Eve in Genesis 2. And we see the consummation of the marriage between Christ and His church in Revelation. Is that not what Paul tells us in Ephesians 1? That He's planned and purposed? We read it read part of it earlier, but Ephesians 1, 3-10, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him things in heaven and things on earth. Our marriage here on earth is a picture of what will be completed when Christ comes back and brings His bride home to be one with Him. We're in that betrothal period, awaiting the day when the trump sounds and Christ comes to get his bride. We have the opportunity to show to the world as a light in a dark place what this is all about through our marriages. I pray that that would be the case. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the time that we've had. Pray, Lord, that you'd cause us to meditate on it throughout this week, Lord, that we might uh, gain from it, that we might learn from it, that we might draw closer to you because of it, Lord. Lord, help us in our marriages. Help us in our relationships to, to be as, as Christ to the church. Lord, that we might uh, love our wives and that our wives might be as the church to Christ in what you've given them to do, Lord. Lord, we understand that this can only work with believers who are living in the Spirit not gratifying the lusts of the flesh. But Lord, we long to be led by the Spirit. Lord, that we might walk according to Your will and in Your way. Be with us throughout this week, Lord. It's in Your, name, in your Son's name we pray. Amen.